This is the Bama Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host Brent Billings. Today we continue our look at the life of Jacob, covering Genesis chapters 32 through 35. In this episode 14 of the Bama Podcast, if somehow you're listening to this and you haven't listened to episode 13 yet, you're definitely going to want to go back and uh, pick that up as we continue our talk about Jacob. Yeah. So we had uh, we started our conversation all the way back when we got started about Genesis. We talked about the preface, uh, what we talked about in discussion groups in these last few weeks. As we we think back to the preface, uh, Genesis one through eleven, how it's this affirmation of God's good story and these constant invitations, these consistent invitations to trust that in fact God is in love with creation. He does find it to be good. It is acceptable. Um, and and people failing to trust that, which leads to tragedy. But then we're, we're brought into what we call the introduction to God's narrative. We had a preface, and then we have an introduction. It's really Genesis 12 through 50. And it's going to be where we meet the family of God. And so we've met this guy named Avram and... And this guy who's willing to trust the story in the midst of the struggle, in the midst of the mistakes, he's going to uh, figure out what it means to to trust and to walk in faithfulness. We've met his son. We saw a couple episodes ago his uh, the story of Avram kind of finding its realization in the life of Yitzhak, the life of Isaac. Um, but then Isaac has these two sons, uh, Jacob and Esau. And so last week we jumped into uh, that discussion in the last podcast and and talked about uh, just the life of, of Jacob and these two sons. And so we met Jacob um, right off the bat, fulfilling this role. He's called heel holder, heel grasper. It kind of gives the idea of usurping or supplanting. Doesn't directly give us the idea of deceiving or liar like people like to say, but he is somebody who is grasping and grappling for more. He wants more. And we find that in the first story when he steals the birthright from his older brother, who happens to be the Bahor, the firstborn. He steals the birthright from Jacob. Uh, there's a little break in the story. And in the next chapter, uh, we meet him again as he, with the help of his mother Rivka, he steals the blessing from Yitzhak. And because of this life of, uh, of, of deception, this life of usurping and having his methods all wrong, I think we would all agree, uh, has his methods wrong in how he's going about doing this. Uh, he has to flee. He has to run. So he runs to uh, Levan, uh, Laban, the uh, descendant of Nahor, and needs to find a new family. He can't dwell with the family that wants to kill him. Can't dwell with Esau. So he finds himself uh, with Laban, finds these two daughters, one of who he is just deeply, madly in love with, um, and uh, ends up marrying them both, uh, having some children. They have to leave. There's a big disagreement over some stolen idols. And really, his whole time with Laban was this big competition of deception, like who could outsmart, who could out-usurp, who could out-supplant the other. And it just culminates in this really large disagreement as he runs. And that was where we, we left off in Genesis uh, 31 last time. So we're going to pick up in the very next story, Genesis 32. Now that uh, Levan has been uh, satiated and has gone back home, uh, Jacob now has to turn his attention to what's next. And that is, uh, he's going to have to deal with Esau. 
he's going to have to start facing down some demons here because uh, his options are basically he's burned every bridge that he's got and he's got to rebuild one of them. So he's going to turn his attention to Esau here. And, and that's where Genesis 32 picks up. Uh, Jacob prepares to meet Esau. And, and what we find here is uh, Jacob being Jacob, uh, he's going to take his family, his everything he owns, all the wealth that he has managed to acquire through his time with Laban, and he's going to split them up into two groups there in verse 7. Uh, and the flocks and the herds and camels as well. He thought if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left might escape. And so you know who he's going to start with? <laughs> he's going to start with Leah. He's going to start with that family. He's going to put them out in front first. And it tells you what his line of thinking is here. So there's no like glorious redemption here of... You know, what is he really trying to accomplish? He's he's thinking, well, if one group gets attacked, maybe the other one can escape. So let's go ahead and start with Leah and her family and all of those possessions. <laughs> Followed up next by Rachel and her family and all of their possessions. And of course, he's such a nice guy. He's He's hanging out in the back. And I'm sure his line of thinking is, well, if the second group doesn't get away, at least I will. A fine fellow here. Do you think he went as far as like, now this is my favorite steak knife, so let's keep that back with Rachel, and that one's kind of worn down and dull, so we'll we'll have Leia carry that one. Oh man, it certainly gives you that impression when you you hear the story, and and maybe we're being, you know, maybe I'm being a little too facetious with that, but man, this life of Jacob is just really hard as we read it to find the redemptive. Like, what is going on here? But anyway, he sends, he sends these two families up in front of him. He's trying to figure out how in the world he's going to survive this encounter with, uh, uh, with uh, Esau. And while the family is on their way to meet him, he stays back. And then he has this, we could really appropriately call it an encounter. So, Brent, if you don't mind, how about you pick up reading there in uh, 3222 and, and read the rest of the chapter here. Okay. Uh, That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons, and crossed the ford of Jabbok. Yavak? I don't know how you'd say that. Yeah, Jabbok. Yavak. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched, And as he wrestled with the man, as he wrestled with the man, then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Yeah, so we have this uh, pretty interesting story here about Jacob. I mean, the subtitle says wrestling with God. The New Testament is going to talk about how Jacob wrestled with God just raises all kinds of questions because what did the story actually say as you read that, Brent? Well, mostly it said a man wrestled with him. 
right? Like he wrestled with a man. Like when you read the story, what what's said is that he wrestles with a man and a man was there and the man said, and it's always a man. And then when Jacob looks back on it, thinking about a name, it's because I got, I saw God face to face and yet my life was spared. So that's the lone implication there, the lone insinuation that there was something more going on with this wrestling match. But Well, the, the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Maybe another indication there. Plus, I mean, you bring up a name change. Who has the authority to change names? You have to have authority over a person. Like some random dude passing through your life doesn't have the authority to be like, oh, by the way, your name's changed. So you have all these weird indications in the story, um, but you also have what the story literally says, and it just raises all these questions as you read it. Um, but what's interesting as we walk through the story is this is the first time that Jacob is having, it has been confronted with his identity. Um, I don't know how much we've talked about names in the podcast. I'm not sure we really have a whole lot. I don't think we've covered it at all. Yeah. So in the in the Hebrew world, names... Names are, it's, it communicates your essence. Like when we named our, our kids, we chose these Hebrew names for our children. And I wrote up a legacy that kind of like a blessing or a legacy that goes with their names. It sits outside their bedrooms and we read it on their birthday. And names in the Jewish world communicate, it's not just what we call you by, it's who you are. And and oftentimes a name will have, it'll kind of have two edges to it. It'll kind of, you can either take your name and you can live it out uh, in a positive sense. You can take your name and you can live it out in a selfish or a negative sense. But names are, we don't give names enough weight, I, I don't think, in our culture, particularly when we read the Bible for sure. So the fact that Jacob has a name that means heel holder, and he has definitely been living out his name, a name which essentially means usurper. Uh, he has definitely been living out the the ne- I think we would say the negative side of his name, usurper. And for the first time in his story, he is confronted with and has to grapple with uh, who he is. I mean, this man, this angel, God, however you want to talk about it, this man uh, says, "What is your?" name. That question has a lot more weight to it than just, hey, hey, what do they call you as we sit here wrestling? What what he's what he's really wrestling with is who are you really? And we know that Jacob has no problem with lying. And if this is some random man that has wandered into camp for your, you know, random wrestling match out in the middle of the desert, uh he 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 could tell him some false name, but Jacob, Jacob, this is my name. My name is Heel Holder. My name is Usurper. And this guy gives him a gives him a new name, a new identity. And what he calls him is Yisrael, which is the combination of two words. Yisrael to conquer and El God. So he says you will be called Yisrael because you will have you have wrestled with God and with man and have overcome. Now I wonder if that's has he wrestled literally with God externally, or is the man saying you've wrestled with God? internally. The fact that you're coming to grips with who you are, the fact that you're coming to grips with your your name and your identity and the essence of, of how you're living that out, that that is where you're wrestling with God in your life. Or or has he more literally wrestled with God? The whole thing's kind of interesting. Like God has to like touch his hip socket in order to like make this fair play. Like of course not. This is kind of like a weird 
This whole thing is weird if he's really wrestling with God. When he comes out of the wrestling match and names the place, what he names it, in order to say, I've wrestled with, I've seen God face to face, which is what the word refers to there. I've seen God face to face and lived. It, it, is Jacob saying like literally, or is he saying, I have, tonight I wrestled with God in a more metaphorical sense, uh, or or is it both? Um, but those are the things that I wrestle with as I hear this story. Did you have something over there too as you sat there? Well, I was just thinking, I was I was reading back on that the very first exchange of words, like Jacob's alone, the guy starts wrestling with him, couldn't overpower him, the hip thing, whatever. Then he finally speaks, he says, let me go for it is daybreak. And Jacob at this point knows nothing of him beyond a random man that he just happened upon. Correct. And he says, I won't let you go unless you bless me which I think is a huge testament to the power of words in general in their culture. Like, who is this guy? But it's it's important enough for me to get a blessing from him before he goes because it doesn't matter who he is. His words are powerful and I want a blessing. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, there's a... And again, I think this story takes us back to what we looked at um, in our last podcast. We were asking the question like, why Jacob? Why not Esau? What's going on here? And we talked about the power of chutzpah and how, how God will take somebody with a little bit of spit, a little bit of fire. Uh, uh, he can take somebody who's moving and the, and the one who wants it. He's going to take Jacob with his chutzpah. And this is the story where God's, the name Israel, like the name of God's people that will be used all throughout the story of the scriptures comes from this, like comes from this story. This is a defining moment and a defining story and defining characteristic of God's people it is the fact that Jacob would wrestle with God. Like what a, anyway, I, I still try to understand the significance of this story that I think sometimes in our culture and part of the heart of Bema that we even do this podcast and, and get together for our discussion groups is to wrestle and to ask questions this is kind of one of those defining stories for that premise. Like this is what God desires. This is the kind of people that God wants to partner with. So if we're going to be the kind of people like don't really want to ask questions, we don't really want to wrestle, we don't really want to work, rock the boat, we don't, that is not what God came to partner with, apparently. If there's something redemptive in Jacob's story, it's that God says, man, I want to work with this kid. And I don't even think it's necessarily that people don't want to. I feel like the way I was taught when I was growing up is you don't question God. Like Absolutely. God has the final decision. He establishes truth. He, you know, whatever God says goes. Right. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. You know? Yeah, absolutely. There's no, there's no room for wrestling with anything. Right. To wrestle is dangerous. Like you're just opening the door to doubt and your faith. In fact, I was critiqued a few years ago. Um, uh, somebody said the problem with my study and what I did was I asked the question, what if? And this particular person said, if I, if I ever, if I ever ask the question, what if stop coming to my church? And, uh, somebody brought that up in one of the classes. And I said, man, if we ever stop grappling with the question, what if, and why, and where, and how, and who, if we ever stop wrestling, if we ever stop asking questions, I said, quit coming to my Bible study. <laughs> it's just so essential to a healthy dynamic. But you're right. The Christian world says, don't do that. Proclaim truth. We got it all figured out. 
pass it on, don't ask questions. And, uh, you know, 3,500 years ago, the story of Jacob, uh, God seems to be giving us a model to follow about the kinds of people he wants to work with. So, you know, we're going to keep moving ahead. Uh, eventually, Jacob does uh, go on to meet Esau. And in fact, it doesn't go worst case scenario. It maybe even goes best case scenario. Esau's ready to forgive him. Uh, Esau ran to meet Jacob. I started there in verse 4 uh, of 33. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. And they wept. And Esau looked up and saw the women and children. And he said, who are these with you? And Jacob answered, they are the children God has graciously given your servant. And the female servants and their children approached and bowed down. Next, Leah and her children came and bowed down. Last of all came Joseph and Rachel, and they too bowed down. Esau asked, what's the meaning of all these flocks and herds that I met? To find favor in your eyes, my Lord, he said. But Esau said, I already have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. No, please, said Jacob, if I have found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me. For to see your face is like seeing the face of God. Interesting statement coming out of the last story there. Uh, Now that you have received me favorably, please accept the present that was brought to you. For God has been gracious to me and I have all I need. And because Jacob insisted, Esau accepted it. Now, it's at this point where I I know when I usually been taught the life of Jacob, uh, I have most definitely been given the impression that 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 wrestling with God was the turning point in his story. Like Genesis 32 is the point where Jacob's life took a turn, like his life changed when he wrestled with God. But I have always watched this story and I've went, wait a minute, has it really changed? I mean, look what happens next. Um, Then Esau said, let us be on our way. I'll accompany you. See, reconciliation has happened. He didn't get killed. His brother's fine. He's all is forgiven. They can live in harmony now. Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are tender and that I must care for the ewes and the cows that are nursing their young. If they are driven hard and just one day, all the animals will die. So let my Lord go on ahead of his servant while I move along slowly at the pace of the flocks and herds before me and the pace of the children until I come to the land, until I come to my Lord and Sayer. Esau said, then let me leave some of my men with you. But why do that? Jacob asked. Just let me find favor in the eyes of my Lord. So that day Esau started on his way back to Seir. Jacob, however, (laughs) went to Sukkot, where he built a place for himself and made shelters for his livestock. This is why the place is called Sukkot. (laughs) So Jacob is still in the middle of his lying, lying, conniving ways. Like, yeah, sure, just go on ahead. I'll be there just a sec. No, I'm going to hang a sharp left. I'm going to head somewhere else and settle there. Do we know where these places are? Sukkot, yes, although I would not be able to explain where it's at without having to go back and find it on a map. And I'm not sure if we know for sure. There might be a few options that we believe. Or uh, even Seir. Well, Seir's more of a, a region where the Edomites uh, end up settling, the, the, the land of Edom. Uh, and the mountain in Edom is known as Mount Seir and was often used, especially in the prophets, to talk about the people of Edom. It was kind of the center kind of the central image of what that land was and what, and it represents the, the land of Esau's descendants. That's who Edom is. So Esau's descendants says will happen in Genesis 36. We won't actually look at it today, but you'll read about Esau's descendants in that chapter. And those descendants are what end up becoming the nation of Edom. Either way, Jacob is not, uh, 
He's not going to the same place as Esau. No, he's sure. And maybe he's starting to have an uptick, but it sure doesn't seem like this was the turning point of his life. But let's keep moving and see what we find out here. Uh, Genesis 34, another story. It's just not, not pretty. They go and they end up dealing with the people of Shechem and, uh, and, and the leader of uh, the son there, the son of the king, whose name is Shechem. He sees one of Jacob's daughters, whose name is Dinah, uh, Dina, Dina, and, uh, and he, he essentially rapes her. That's what happens if we're just blunt about it. Um, he, he takes her and abuses her. And uh, the brothers, obviously, get pretty furious about that. He didn't uh, go through the proper channels. He didn't respect patriarchy. He didn't ask for her hand. He took her and abused her and violated her. And so the brothers, uh, they go to seek revenge. And so they they set up this very sneaky Jacob-like, I mean, they are Jacob's true descendants here. They set up this uh, false covenant built on false pretenses where they're like, listen, We'll give you we'll give you Dinah and marriage, but you guys need to become a part of our our group here. So that means you need to be circumcised. So they set up this little thing, and everybody gets circumcised. And that night, while everybody is trying to recover, because such a surgery is not a fun thing when you're not eight days old. It's probably not a fun thing when you're eight days old either. But nevertheless, um, they sneak in under the cover of darkness and essentially uh, slaughter everybody in the city. The men there, the fighting men. And what's interesting is at the end of the story. And so, of course, we can sit back and critique the methods. There'd be a valid critique of the methods here of the sons. And it's going to be critiqued in the scriptures um, at the end of the book of Genesis and elsewhere. But we also obviously have to remember what started this thing uh, with the rape of Dinah. And then listen to the words of Jacob. Tell me if this is a man who's been reformed, if this is a man who's been changed. Jacob said to Shimeon and Levi, Levi, this is uh, down in verse 30, by the way. Down in verse 30, last two verses of 34. Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me obnoxious to the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Uh, the Hebrew there talks about a stench. Uh, the people living in this land, we are few in number. And if they join forces against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. And listen to all the me's. You have made trouble for me by making me obnoxious to the Canaanites and Perizzites, the people living in this land. We are few in number, and if they join forces against me and attack me and my household, uh, we will be destroyed. And this sure doesn't sound like a guy that uh, is has been had this life-changing experience, wrestled with God, come away changed, now cares about others. He seems to be the same guy who cares about himself and where he's going and what he's going to get and how safe he's going to be. And maybe we're being too harsh as we read that, but I'll give that to our listeners to wrestle with. What's interesting is the last chapter we're going to look at today here, Genesis 35. Um, Jacob's going to return to Bethel with his family. And then uh, later on in the chapter. Yeah, let's just go ahead and if you don't mind, Brent, you want to read chapter 35 here? I may stop you. I may not. I don't know. Sure. Then God said to Jacob, go up to Bethel and settle there and build an altar there to God who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, get rid of the foreign gods you have with you. 
and purify yourselves and change your clothes. Then come, let us go up to Bethel, where I will build an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods they had and the rings in their ears, and Jacob buried them under the oak at Shechem. Then they set out, and the terror of God fell on the towns all around them so that no one pursued them. Jacob and all the people with him came to Luz, that is Bethel, in the land of Canaan. There he built an altar, and he called the place El Bethel, because it was there that God revealed himself to him when he was fleeing from his brother. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died and was buried under the oak outside Bethel. So it was named Alan Bakuth. After Jacob returned from Padan Aram, God appeared to him again and blessed him. God said to him, Your name is Jacob, but you will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel. So he named him Israel. Okay, now hold on. What's odd about that? Uh, well, wasn't he already Israel? Yeah. <laughs> Didn't he already get his name changed? His name's already changed. Like, why has God all of a sudden changes his name again? And I, And again, maybe I'm being far too hard on Jacob, but the one phrase that's missing when it talks about God says, go build an altar. He says, I'm going to go build an altar uh, so that God, to, let's see here, what does he literally say? You read that there. Um, he says, uh, then come, let us go up to Bethel, where I will build an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. It, I mean, that sounds like a really good statement, but is this is this Jacob continue, continuing to try to work the system? The one phrase that's missing that was there for Isaac, it was there for Abraham, it was there for his father and his grandfather, was that they build they they built altars and they did what? Uh, they pitched tents. Okay, and what else did they do? And the phrase that said they they would build an altar and call on the name of the Lord. Call on the name of the Lord. And what's interesting here is, and and to be honest, I mean we we can assume that they're intense. I mean that'd be a really safe assumption. But that's also void of the text. He builds the altar. He does the things that are necessary to stay in the blessing of God. But is it? Am I am I reading too much into the text or out of the text? Or is the author, per, is there no mention of how he's calling on the name of the Lord? I just asked the question there. But what's interesting is his name gets changed the same way for the second time. What's that going to be all about? So let's keep reading and see if we can figure out what it is. Okay, verse 11. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and a community of nations will come from you and kings will be among your descendants. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I also give to you, and I will give this land to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him at the place where he had talked with him. Jacob set up a stone pillar at the place where God had talked with him, and he poured out a drink offering on it. He also poured oil on it. Jacob called the place where God had talked with him Bethel. Okay, so when God told him, uh, what was it? There was the first words out of God's mouth when he spoke to him. Mm, I am God Almighty. Oh, okay. well, and? before that. Nope, nope, right there. Okay. Same spot. Be fruitful and increase in number. Have we heard that before? Uh, it's all over the place. Right. Like in two really big stories, we heard uh, obviously Adam and Eve, but then the big one was uh, Noah and coming out of the ark, and he was told twice to be fruitful and increase in number. Now Jacob is told the same thing. So you expect that he's, there's going to be more children for whatever, like however that's going to work. There's going to be more children. There's going to be more love shared with his wives. So let's keep reading there, Brent. 
Well, he already has, uh, what did it say earlier? He had 11 sons already, right? So mm-hmm. he's got to have at least one more. Yep, absolutely. And uh, But we would kind of expect, like if we've got those other stories ringing in the back of our head, we expect either, but what do we also expect? There should be another child, but... Mm, there's going to be some kind of tragedy. Some kind of tragedy is going to, going to like, either that son's not going to make it, we're not going to get another son, or something's going to happen. Something's going to happen, and I would expect if I know my Noah story, somebody is going to get blamed. Like somebody's going to take the blame. So, so let's see. Let's keep. Let's keep going here. Uh, then they moved on from Bethel. While they were still some distance from Ephrath, uh, Rachel began to give birth and had great difficulty. And as she was having great difficulty in childbirth, the midwife said to her, "Don't despair, for you have another son." As she breathed her last, for she was dying. She named her son Ben-Oni, but his father named him Benjamin. Uh, Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Over her tomb, Jacob set up a pillar, and to this day that pillar marks Rachel's tomb. Okay, I think that's a good place to stop for this conversation. But she dies in childbirth, and as she's dying, she gives this last son the name Ben-Oni, which means uh, son of my trouble. Uh, son of my sorrow. Uh, and Jacob, for whatever reason, just can't come to let that name stick. He doesn't want that to be. And he names him Benjamin, which means son of my right hand, which son of my favor, or or almost even favorite son. He's going to be the last born son. And yet his name kind of says, you're, you're my favorite. You're one of my favorites, at least. You are definitely a favored son, one of two from his favorite wife. Well, and if he's sitting at his father's right hand, that would make him the in the place of greatest honor. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that communicates all kinds of stuff. So, so Jacob has this. What's interesting is if we were to jump to the end of the book of Genesis, when Jacob is telling Joseph, when they go back down to Egypt, Jacob starts telling Joseph the story of how Rachel dies. And in our English Bibles, the phrase reads, to my great sorrow, Rachel died. But in the Hebrew, it can literally read, to my fault or because of me, Rachel died. You see, if I'm holding on to the Noah story in the back of my mind, because I've heard this before, be fruitful and multiply, here comes a tragedy, somebody so something is taken from somebody is supposed to get blamed and it appears through the story that Jacob tells later he blames himself he says it was my fault that Rachel died now can you remember Brent why that why he might say such a thing why it was his fault that Rachel died yeah let's see there was a story where Laban was arguing about somebody stole my idols Laban says and did Jacob know who had stolen the idols, by the way? Oh, it was, uh, was it Rachel? Yes, it was. Yeah. Now he, but did Jacob know that? No. No. So Laban says, somebody has stolen my idols. Jacob, in ignorance, is saying, absolutely not. And what does he say? If anyone yeah. has stolen my idols, essentially off with their head. Yeah. Like, may they die. He am, puts I, a, am I getting this mixed up with another story, though? What am I thinking of? I'm thinking of the... Uh, you like you can have the next person who walks through the door thing or whatever. That oh, was... the Jephthah story. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've never even thought about the connections there. Yeah, in the book of Judges. Well, we'll get to that later. But yeah. yeah. So, so Jacob definitely. I think at least my rabbi taught me as I studied a lot of the stuff. By the way, speaking of rabbis who teach this stuff, uh, Foreman has incredible material in the life of Jacob. I don't want to take all of his stuff and just repeat it. You can find it all 
We're going to start moving a little bit quicker through this Genesis stuff, but just while I'm thinking of it, Rabbi Foreman, Aleph Beta Academy, we've linked to that a bunch on our website, has all kinds of great stuff on Genesis and Jacob. We'll link it again in this episode, just, we'll link just it for fun. Just to make but sure. Hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of material <laughs> on Genesis. Yeah, really, really good You will good get your, stuff. Full, your, uh, your fill. Yeah, that's right. Little, little small little membership if you want unlimited access, definitely worth the the 10 bucks a month or whatever it is. Um, but anyway, it's, uh, Jacob, as, as this was taught to me by another rabbi that taught me Ray uh, about this story, it would seem that Jacob has owned the death of Rachel. He says, it was my lying, conniving ways that ended up killing my fa-. It was the one, it was like the only thing that Jacob really wanted in his life. Like if you go back through his life, like the only thing he really pined after Maybe the firstborn, the Bahor, the birthright, those kind of things. But he kind of squandered that. He never really had that because he had to be on the run his whole life. So like the only thing he really, really sought after and chased after, like the only real true love of his life was Rachel. And according to the, his story at the end of his life, he feels like it was his fault. She died because of the curse that I put on her unknowingly. It's my fault. Now, here's why this all kind of comes full circle to me. God changes his name twice to Israel, conquered God. But in the Hebrew, that name can just as easily mean God conquered. You can swap those things around. So I've always wondered if the first time God changed his name, Jacob wrestled with God and Jacob won. And God's like, man, I love that about you. But I sure hope that you're going to let me get a hold of your life and take all that passion and that fire and that chutzpah and use it towards my end. But it doesn't appear that he does. And so eventually God breaks Jacob and he loses the one thing that he cared about the most. And if there's a lesson in that, it's that God longs to use your chutzpah. He longs to use your passion. He longs to use your Jacobness. I know we talked, I think, last week about how many Jacobs do we have out there, people that can resonate with the Jacob story. You're not necessarily a great rule follower. You've been pretty selfish through your life, but man, you wake up with a fire in your bones. God wants to use that fire in your bones, but make sure you let him use it his way to his ends. Let the story that God's trying, trust the story like Avram and let those things shape uh, who you become. Because if not, and you find yourself trying to live in the narrative of God, it may cost you everything that's not aligned properly in God's created order. And you may end up blaming, I'm not sure Jacob is to blame, but it sure is the sorrow that he seems to carry. And, and by the time we get to the end of his life, it's at this point, the second time God changes his name, I wonder if it actually means this time God conquered Jacob. The first time Jacob wrestled with God and Jacob won. But the second time God wrestled with Jacob and God won. And this is where Jacob will change. From this point on in the story, Jacob will be a completely different character. He's going to be this old whipped patriarch sitting in the back of the story in the story of Joseph. This guy who's afraid to move. He's afraid to lose. We'll get to that in the Joseph story. He's afraid to lose his family members. He won't do anything God asks him to do or or wants him to do because he's afraid he's going to lose everybody and everything. This is where Jacob will experience change. And I think there's an invitation there to let God change us 
before we ruin ourselves. I don't think God ruined Jacob. I think Jacob ruined Jacob. And uh, so I think there's an invitation there to consider as we look at that. I'm just looking back at this part where, where God changes his name the second time, and it's kind of interesting. So God said to him, your name is Jacob, but you no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel, so he named him Israel. So each name is said twice, like, hey, I'm, I really mean this. Yeah. Like, yeah, you know this, but it's not that anymore. It's going to be this, and so it's this. And then it says, and then nothing. Jacob doesn't say anything. And God said to him, mm. like, Jacob's sitting there. Yeah. Like, what do you mean? What, like, now I'm conquered? Really? Like, this is... I'm not, I'm not the guy who's grasping for things anymore. Like, right. What is this even? I don't know how to live this way. Right. So he's just sitting there and God's like, look, I'm God almighty. Like all this great stuff's going to happen. That's fantastic. Uh, yeah. I really like that. I didn't even notice that, but you're absolutely correct. And good. And then God said to him, yep, be fruitful and increase in number. And yeah, kind of an affirmation there. Like you're about ready to go through some really tough stuff. Uh, I'm going to use you. I'm going to reaffirm the covenant promise. That's really good. I like that a lot. Read right over the first time. Man, yeah, so good. So anyway, I know I sure find myself in Jacob's story quite a bit as I've studied it. Uh, I'm not a Jacob all the way through every single day, but I have had my Jacob moments. And uh, there's a lot of things, unfortunately, in the short (laughs) 12, 13, 14 years I've had in the ministry. Um I've learned far too many lessons the hard way. And I think this story is one of those things that begs to teach people like me. Sounds about good for this episode. I think so. We'll be back next time talking about Yosef. Um, But yeah, until then, if you uh, live on the Palouse, we hope you join us for our discussion groups in Moscow on Tuesday or in Pullman on Wednesday. If you want to get a hold of Marty, you can find him on Twitter at Marty Solomon. You can find me on Twitter at EIBCB. And you can find more details about the show at BamaDiscipleship.com. Thanks for joining us on the Baymont Podcast, and we'll talk to you again soon.